How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> Very nice. You know, for, for, for our listening audience, uh, I just want you to know that Mark stands up gets the microphone in front of him and just lets this go and it is i tell you every week it's it's just so exciting it's a it's, journey it's a journey it's energetic and it just gets you going Get, it, it does, and there. you know what? It was Thomas who um, recommended that I stand up to get the whole diaphragm going into it. Well, thank you, Thomas. Hey, you're welcome. It's a very, very good suggestion. Yes. Yeah, Thomas has important. added tremendous value to this show yeah, it, over the last few years, hasn't absolutely, he? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what's great is that small changes can have big effects. Yeah. You stand up and your diaphragm changes. That's right. Welcome, Thomas. Hello, Dr. Joe. So nice to be here tonight. And there's Ben in there. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are we doing, guys? We've got our team tonight. Very meaty topic. It is a meaty topic. Deep. It's going to be deep. It's deep and it's... it's Heavy. Heavy. And vital. Heady. And vital and could save lives. Yeah, because yep. we're on the radio, we're on the internet. Oh, we're larger than life, right? No. No. We're all human. And I don't know if it's too soon for a segue, but this is something that's been going on in my life is... I felt kind of like a seasonal slump. Yeah. And uh, you expect so much of yourself in such a short time. Yep. Especially in the winter. Yep. And, what do you uh, mean by that? Well, you know, I'm driven towards success, stuff like that. Yeah. And you feed yourself all this, uh, like, reading. I've been reading a bunch of self-help stuff, all those, like, celebrity entrepreneur stuff, you know, the Grant Cardones, your Gary V's, your Tim Ferriss, who is I admire most. And I cracked open a copy of this book, Tools of Titans, mm. where he interviews a bunch of celebrities and like very successful people in very different fields. And he has his own little journal sections where he breaks down um, it's like why this is important, why it's okay to skim it where you are in life. And he talks about how people look up to him as like a, the, the paragon of success. Mm. And he describes a three-month slump where he would sleep in until the afternoon. Where he would browse um, certain gentlemanly websites several times a day, distract himself. And this was also at the zenith of his income. This is Tim Ferriss we're talking about, this right? This is Tim yeah. Ferriss. So, so He's can, got a great story. can we just, you know, talk about it as it really is? Because, folks, for, for those listening, you may already pick up that we are going to be talking about depression. Oh, yeah. We're not, it's, you know, we call it slumps, we call it blues, we call it these things, but we're talking about depression. And we're going to be talking really about this broader thing. I, I don't like the name of it, mental illness, mm -hmm. because from an I am point, point of view, there's no illness. Sounds like you need a doctor. Sounds like I need a doctor. Ah. What I do is I need to cough. Can I cough? Right I ahead, think you may. We'll give it. You know what else is really cool I about so um, much better. our guest today, other than all that is interesting, with our connection with the Dr. Joe show, I went back. We we decided we were gonna have Doctor uh, Martin on the show again, and I'm like, I remember him, but I don't. 
because there was a few episodes early on that were really heavy, really heady, but they were doctors that I, I can't remember who was who, right? So I went back to our episode on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. What other what other places can you consume? Anything that draws <clears throat> from iTunes. Uh, Mark mentioned Swoot a lot. Uh, Castbox. So I actually listened to mine on Swoot, but to, your, to our first to a so podcast. I went to it was episode six was the episode that we had, and they're not all in order, right? right. Don, um, Thomas did it in a really um, strategic way, but episode six was actually episode one of the Dr. Joe Show with his brand new co-host Mark Styles. Mark Styles. <clears throat> How funny is that? That's so great. So, so I was listening to the <clears throat> intro. So I, I listened to it today to try to get some <clears throat> intel on Dr. Martin and try to remember, you know, his story and all of that, which is going to be awesome, you guys. So that's going to be great. Um, but I started listening to the intro, and it was, you know, thank you. We have a new co-host. He started, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. This is the first official episode that we did after what I refer to as the pilot, right, the one where you actually had me as a guest. Right, and we talked about you know stress and anxiety as it relates to life changing moments such as real estate transactions. Right, and that was kind of a promo for me, and I was like, oh, this is great! I can chop it up and I can send it around and and get some play and some reach advertising wise. And then we became co I became a co host, but this was the first episode, so it was really uh, it was kind of flashback because I remember like the anxiety of sitting there, like, uh, should I say something? Uh, really? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I could put my person in that seat while I was listening to it. And that first episode with Mark, he did the Dr. Joe show introduction and he's done it that way every time. It gets better and better each time. But I was like, whoa, astonished because he came in, Mark, you came in and you just made it yours. You took the chair. You made it yours. You got to act like you own it. Well, it's more than an act because you own it. Yeah, and I now, own it. And it's we, been fun. And it's we, really been fun. And we're doing it. We're doing it. And, and tonight, look how far we've come really? since then. I don't remember what the date was published, but it's been a couple years now. Yeah. I feel much more comfortable in this chair than I did that day. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm, I'm delighted. And now know? we got Thomas. And we've got Thomas. Yep. We've come a long way for your listening audience. If you want to go back to episode six, six. of the podcast, six. you can, you can yeah. compare. But on that episode, that's, if you recall, he was on his bike ride that's across right. the country from Portland to Portland, right. which I was fascinated yep. by. Um, and that was to bring awareness to mental illness. And, that's right. And to break the cycle, right? And to the break stigma, the cycle. The cycle of stigma. The cycle right? of stigma. Yeah. Which, which really is such a barrier to coming in and getting the care. Right, it's a barrier because if you feel that you're going to be judged, and this is what the I am is all about, guys. Remember, the I am is saying we're all doing the best we can, and at every moment in time, with the potential to change, it's your current maximum potential. And if you think you're going to be judged by somebody else, you are going to potentially feel broken with less value. It's what's so tragic is that people who need that kind of counseling or just to talk to someone notice the pattern in their speech. They'll always be apologizing. Yes. Because they just think it's just a bunch of spaghetti that's pouring out that no one cares listen to listen to or that they don't even need to to that, sh display. That they are an imposter. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I'm boy. sorry. You get that? Imposter an, an imposter. That's a spaghetti joke. Yeah. Yeah, he got Pass. it. Can we talk about what we're going to talk about with Dr. Martin yes. tonight? Because 
we have a tendency to talk medical speak a little bit, and I want to make sure that you we're, know we don't lose any of our listeners. We're with not. That. We're not. So okay. Uh, the the and I'm I'm going to let Dr. Martin and Dr. Chilton, Julie yes. Chilton, is coming on yeah. as well. The co-authors Alex's in this paper, sister. and and this was this was a paper that has has recently been published, and I think it's going to be a breakthrough paper in medical education. Okay. Because uh, as we'll learn in medicine, there is this huge pressure to be perfect. I'm going to give you a personal story. When I was a medical student, when I was a medical student, <laughs> um, long time, my, fortnight. My now wife, Carol, she and I had moved out to Cincinnati. She was my fiance. She left everything behind here, you know, in Massachusetts. Family came out with me, and I was determined to do well in, in medicine, and I was studying all the time. We called it the monastic life of medicine, studying, studying, studying. Carol would come into the the office and study and say, come on, let's go out for dinner. No, 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 I've got to study. I've got to study. It's the most important thing in my life. I've got to study. Mm. And my wife-to-be would sort of look at me and, and walk out. And, and, and she was there for me, always there for me. And I took my very first exam in medical school on anatomy. And I'll be honest, folks, I flunked it cold. Mm. Cold. Failed it cold. Um, I lost my medical school ID on, as I was walking home from medical school to our apartment. And I come into our apartment, and there's Carol, and she can just see that I am dejected, that I feel valueless, that I'm worthless, that I'm a failure, I'm an imposter. And she comes over, and she gives me a hug. Mm. And I realized at that moment, no matter how hard I worked, Medical school and medicine would never give me a hug, but Carol would. And it completely changed my priorities in life. And Carol and my family became my priority. And because of that, I've been able to achieve the things I can achieve. Because I know what's really important, what's really important are those relationships, those people. And I teach this to every single medical student, resident. I say, just remember, this will not give you a hug. Right. You have to be who you are. And then I went on and I, I did all these things, which I'm really very proud of. I've helped a lot of people, and I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity to help all these people. And the reason I think I can help them is because of the I am. Mm-hmm. Because they knew that I respected them and valued them, and that allowed them to trust me with their secrets because as I say secrets aren't secrets because of what we've done secrets are secrets because we worry how will someone judge me if they know my secret will they see me with less value and the I am is saying you know what you are valuable I am I matter I matter you matter and that's what's important never forget that you matter that you have value that is much more important than anything because when you remember you have value, if somebody else is judging you as less than, huh, well, that's that other person's I am. Right. What's going on in their home domain, their social domain, their biological domain, their I see, how do they see themselves or see other people? That the best they can do to feel valuable is to try to put you down. We don't need to do that. You have value. 
We all do. And the more we can remind each other of our value, the more valuable we become. And everybody wants to feel valuable. So that's why I'm so excited to talk with Andreas Martin and Julia Chilton about the study they've done because they are able to bring people along with them because they are willing to be bold and courageous and talk about who they are. Just like the kids in Drug Story Theater. Right. The courage that it takes for them to get up and say, this is who I am. I have the great honor of introducing Dr. Andreas Martin and Dr. Julie Chilton, uh, both from Yale, and I, I am delighted, you know, to be able to introduce people from Yale, even though I'm from Harvard. Uh, but you know, Yale's pretty good. Yale's pretty good. Um, I'm sorry, I say, I say, I say that, to, I, I say that to Andreas every time. But, it's but it's can your I, I, It's your I am. It's, it's, it's my I am. I'm sorry. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Dr. Martins, nice to have you here. It's great to be here, Joe. Dr. Joe, I'm sorry. So, uh, so let me just let me just give the title of okay. the paper: "Physician Self-Disclosure of Lived Experience Improves Mental Health Attitudes Among Medical Students: A Randomized Study." Uh, Andreas, do you want to tell us a bit about what this study is about? What are you guys looking at? Sure. Um, this really was a brainchild of uh, Julia and myself. I um, teach at uh, Tel Aviv University in Israel every spring. I've been doing so for the last several years. It's a great pleasure. And this last year, I had a harebrained idea of doing a research project. The good news is that I wanted to do research, and I felt like it was timely to do it. The bad news is that my idea was harebrained. <laughs> it wasn't totally harebrained, but it was a boring vanilla study that I had in mind that I'm happy to tell you was published, but we won't tell you about that. Julie, who has been joining me in Israel for the last three years, um, and who's a dear friend, when I described the research, she probably said, Andres, that is a harebrained vanilla study. I will gladly help you with it, but why don't we do something that really matters? And that caught my attention, you know, something that really matters. And I'm going to pass the baton here to Julie, who had the original idea of what really matters. Julie, what really matters? Um, so what really matters is that we do something meaningful within the medical culture that changes um, the way medical students and trainees especially uh, feel about themselves and their own humanity and imperfections. And unfortunately, for many, many, many years, um, even before this big burnout uh, epidemic uh, came about and, and um, caught the attention of so many people, Doctors have long felt they needed to be absolutely perfect in order to be a physician. And um, what I was hoping that Andres might do was uh, figure out if it truly was um, evidence-based that if more senior physicians revealed their humanity and imperfections to trainees, that would then make trainees feel better about admitting when they struggle and being okay with getting help when they struggle, given that physicians have such a high, high, high rate of suicide. Mm -hmm. And they notoriously don't get care before they die by suicide. And, and what's, do you think, the reasoning behind that? Why aren't physicians 
going out and seeking care. I mean, you, you would expect the exact opposite, right, as a general public. I mean, here are physicians. They know what it is, you know, to have some dilemma. Why aren't they getting help? I think that we all, Joe, you and I included, we were classmates many years ago. All of us physicians have been trained to have a, I don't know, stiff upper lip, to be perfect, to be role models, to be upstanding citizens, um, to be a model to others. And I don't know that that has been explicitly the message, but it certainly has been the hidden curriculum, the hidden message that we've grown up to up with and any um, any notion that we gave to the public at large to our patients to our families that there was something amiss with us might in turn lead others to think that we don't really know how to take care of people if we can't take care of ourselves so that might be hmm. part of why the culture has been such and the culture in medicine has been a very paternalistic one i know best i'll teach you and you'll do Right. And luckily for all of us, that culture has been changing. So the, the first rule, the first thing in the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. Do you think that without meaning to, we have been doing harm to ourselves in this way? Absolutely. We've been doing harm to ourselves and to those who we have trained. And Julie and I are not speaking in hypotheticals. So, so far as, as we introduce this study, we've been talking in hypotheticals. But uh, Julie and I both have not only done harm to ourselves and to those under us, but we have a horse in the game. And we have seen the shift in ourselves and in our trainees. And we want to spread that word. I, I should also add that, Joe, you and I am dating myself because, you know, I have much less hair than you, but uh, we're of the same age, more or less. But more Julie. Less is very, very young. In fact, she's so young that she was one of my trainees. Wow. And one of the beautiful things about this is that we learn from our trainees. Absolutely. And, 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 and certainly in this study and this whole adventure and this whole wonderful chapter of my life of self-disclosure was through, you know, a uppity trainee who told me that I didn't know everything. And that's Julie. So, so I wonder whether, whether Julie, can, can we just get that vignette? What, what actually happened with, with that moment when you were able to tell, you know, this, this senior? Go ahead. So um, I suppose this begins with a, a bit of a, a sad story. Um, I, uh, from a family with three girls, my, I was the middle child of three girls. And unfortunately, when I was in college, my older sister passed away by suicide. Mm. And... Um, I dealt with that uh, in, uh, I suppose I, I didn't deal with it until several years later when I graduated from college. And my initial coping mechanism was to uh, make up for that blight as I viewed it upon my family by becoming as perfect as possible and, you know, getting really good grades at an Ivy League college. And every time I had a chance going out into the world and getting an internship and this and that, so my parents had something. Uh, they could talk about in social situations that wasn't so um, stigmatizing. And then when I finally graduated from college and went home and I had to face um, how horribly destroyed my parents were and my younger sister and um, then dealt with my own grief, I 
went to see a psychiatrist for the first time and lo and behold was diagnosed with depression and some anxiety and had to take some medicine and that um, moment when I first swallowed the I think it was Paxil at the time and I was looking at this little pill in my hand and thinking this is I'm gonna be forever different and people are going to think I'm weird because I'm on a, a psych med and it's going to change my personality and I had all these shame-filled ideas about it and um, really it was more focused on that than the idea that it was going to make me feel a lot better hmm. which it did and I went through therapy and I stayed on the medication and uh, funny enough I decided that this whole gig that my psychiatrist had of being a nurturer but also intellectual and um, caregiving and an expert on personalities and relationships and all things interesting to me um, was a profession I might want to do. So I went to medical school and was uh, quite reluctant to reveal to anybody my imperfect past as I, like many medical students, wondered if I truly was good enough um, and had what we call imposter syndrome and was happy to hide my imperfect past until our favorite anatomy professor died by suicide and until hmm. a, a friend of mine a year ahead attempted suicide and at that point i decided that the fraud had to stop and there were people that clearly were struggling and if we all were more open about it and maybe so many people wouldn't be lost um, to mental illness so I stood up in front of my medical school class and said, hey, uh, I have had depression. I'm doing great now. Uh, we're not alone. You're not alone. If you have something similar. Come once a month to my house for a confidential dinner meeting, and we'll support each other because there's no reason to be ashamed, and we can get through this together. And I called it the Redfield Group after Kay Redfield Jameson, who's a clinical psychologist who wrote uh, the very uh, well-known bipolar memoir, uh, An Unquiet Mind. And I was familiar with that memoir because that was the intervention of most importance to me when I was struggling with my own internalized stigma and my psychiatrist gave me that book and said, look, you're no longer depressed. Uh, you, your grief is much improved, but you're judging yourself. and." Maybe you need to know that you can go on and be successful and have romances and people will love you in spite of the fact that you have a mental health history, which is exactly what Dr. K. Redfield Jameson accomplished as she's, you know, a Johns Hopkins professor and ran the UCLA Mood and Affective Disorders Clinic and had many loves. Um, and that book made me realize that I could go on and have a wonderful life in spite of this imperfection of a history of depression and anxiety and losing my sister to suicide. And so that's why it was called the Redfield Group, as Dr. Jameson was a clinician, a psychologist who took care of many patients and was an expert in bipolar disorder, is an expert. And um, it was an example, a role model, if you will, for all the medical students that they too um, could go on to do amazing things like Dr. Jameson. If um, they got help and had the support they needed. And so uh, I ran that group for four years. Dr. Jameson heard about it, came, did a grand rounds on suicide with us, um, 
donated her honorarium to the group so I didn't have to pay for chili out of my own pocket anymore and um, became a mentor of sorts. And probably the most meaningful moment I had in my professional career was going from reading that first book, An Unquiet Mind, as um, you know, a pre-med student dreaming of becoming a clinician and getting over my own mental health issue to two books later when she wrote about bereavement after her husband's death being mentioned on page 56, you know, in that book oh. by that woman who had inspired me. Um, and so, you know, I went on and, and spoke very openly and um, went to Penn for residency, adult psychiatry residency, and then Yale for um, child psychiatry fellowship. And once I arrived in New Haven, needing a new psychiatrist and somebody to prescribe my then Lexapro, uh, I definitely did not want to ask Andres Martin because he was this brainiac who everybody in the field knew and was, you know, tenure editor of the Orange Journal. And I was so terrified of him and all his prominence and success and perfections. And um, so instead of asking him for a recommendation of a psychiatrist, I asked his colleague, Dr. Stubbe, um, who I should see in case, you know, I needed uh, extra support while I was in fellowship. And I'll now pass it to Andres so he can illuminate um, maybe some things that I didn't know. Julie has, has, has courageously told us about you know, her sister and her own depression and then getting into probably one of one of the elite child psychiatry fellowships in the world at Yale. And now Dr. Martin comes into the story. Let's hear it, Andreas. When all of this was happening, uh, as Julie mentioned, I was um, in a very privileged and very fortunate and very wonderful moment of my life. I had uh, just become a full professor with an endowed chair. Uh, I was publishing. I was the editor-in-chief of the premier journal in the world. For child psychiatry. Uh, I had arrived. I had arrived. Mm-hmm. And despite that, there was something that was just not quite right, but I didn't know it at the time. I will fast forward, and I know exactly the date, because it was in January of 2018 when this first thing was published. But it was a little bit before. It was actually in the fall of 2017 when I was a lame duck as an editor. In fact, I had edited the last issue that wouldn't come out for a couple of months. And I had all this time in front of me, and I decided to uh, bike across the country, something that I'll tell at some other point. But I I biked across the country to raise awareness about children's mental illness and to try to raise funds. And it was a very successful, wonderful experience of uh, three months crossing the country, over 5,000 miles. Wonderful experience. But as I did it, I was very, very aware that I was doing it for a number of reasons, not only the ones that I outlined, but that if I didn't cycle and if I wasn't out, I would go back into this horrible thing that by then I had a name for, which was depression. Um, I should note that as you know, an editor of some prominence, as a tenured professor of psychiatry, I know what depression is. I, I treat many patients with depression. I have for years. I've known as... I'm known as somewhat of an expert in the use of medications and diagnosing depression. I know what depression is. And yet, here was this expert who didn't know what was happening. 
Uh, and it became clear later on, and as I look back, it's very clear that what was happening was depression. This was the fourth, at least, serious episode of depression in my life. Um, I'm very aware that I have a very, very um, strong family history of depression. And yet, despite all of this, despite having been on treatment, on therapy, on medications, this hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and in this position of prominence, I now realize I had this term that Julie introduced, this internalized stigma. How could I, the editor of the journal, the this and that, how could I say anything like this? Now, I, I wasn't aware of it at the time at all, but I, it hit me as a ton of bricks when in January of 2018, this very short article was published. In fact, it wasn't an article, it was a book review on a book written by the same Kay Jamison that uh, Julie just mentioned. She wrote an extraordinary um, literary biography on the great American poet Robert Lowell, who had severe, severe bipolar disorder, was hospitalized many times. And I wrote about that book, and in that book uh, review, in that book review on the journal that I had been an editor on, I came out, I came clean, and I said, here you have me. I am this person who has had this terrible depression. And at that time, I didn't, I wasn't fully aware, but it was a very momentous thing. And once I did it, it was very easy after that. Um, a month after that, I had the opportunity to give a TED talk about my bike ride across the country. And then after that, one experience after the other in which I could talk, I've been very aware and I'm aware, um, keenly aware even as we speak that there's this fine balance between talking about it just enough and just for the right reasons and talking about it just for talking about it or talking about me, me, me. And I, I believe that my connection with Julie has been so strong and our partnership, scientific partnership has been so strong because we take this very seriously. You, you just heard Julie, once again, with great uh, bravery, share about her sister's suicide. Um, she doesn't do this in cocktail parties all the time. She's very open, but very deliberate in how she does it. And I've learned from her. And it's a very, very strong potion that we have in our toolkit as physicians, as healers, to share about ourselves. And like any medication, you can overdose it if you go telling about it to every you know, if it becomes about mm. you and look at me, listen about my suffering, it becomes a poison. Right. So we're very aware of that. And from there it went on. You know, Julie sat in front of the students, gave her story. I did so with the students. And we randomly evaluated half of them on their perceptions about mental illness, about stigma, uh, those who had heard the story, our stories, and those who hadn't. By the end of the study, all students got received the evaluate the, the intervention, but we were able to really tease apart the effect that it had. And the effect was powerful, uh, both in how we measured with this instrument and that instrument, but particularly by the comments that we had from the students. And one year later, uh, Julie and I have a conference call just later this week when we're going to be talking to these medical students who are on their own after this one hour intervention went on and set up their own, not Redfield group, but they called it Let's talk about it let's taco about it where they meet once a month to have tacos and talk about mm -hmm. real stuff and how difficult it is to be a medical student and 
the burden of trying to be perfect and the relief at knowing that someone else has made a medical error and someone else has had difficulties at home and someone else, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. So it's, it's powerful. So this is what you mean by self-disclosure that correct. And that stand in front of the world and saying, not only am I not perfect, but I embrace my imperfections. They make me human. They make me your sibling, your co-equal, because I know I might know I might not know many things about you, Doctor Joe, but I know this. Spoiler alert: <laughs> you are not perfect. Is there such a thing? But that's that's what the I am is saying. You know, I am doing the best I can. That doesn't. That's not the same thing as being perfect. Right. Perfection is a journey. There's no real destination to perfection, is there? But there, there is. But you see, if if you are looking for perfection, that means that you are not perfect, and right. somehow not being perfect implies being broken and having less value. And I really object to that. That's what the I am is about. Saying no, 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 no. It's not about being perfect. It's not about being imperfect mm -hmm. it's about being who you are and looking at at how you got to where you are who i am who we are and why we do what we do and you know andreas and i we we go way back and we we had you know two years of remarkable training with these remarkable mentors um and yet that didn't make us perfect mm -hmm. but but what what's wonderful for me about this andreas and julie is that this isn't just about medical students. This is about right. any profession, any relationship, anyone. You know, if you worry that you're not doing the best you can and you can't tell someone that, that's potentially going to lead to all sorts of difficulty. We, 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 am I missing something here? You're not missing a thing. And in fact, if certain political leaders in certain nations that will go unnamed were more likely to embrace their imperfection to seek help to say i don't know it all i struggle with this i need your help the world would be a much better place but before we get to those lofty levels uh you're absolutely right this is not a medical student problem this is not a doctor problem this is a humanity problem right now, Julie and I are modest, and we don't want to change humanity overnight. I do. But we think, good, we <laughs> think that there's something here, that there's a, a virtuous cycle that we can use this small study and this small experience of two psychiatrists bearing their guts in front of medical students that can go somewhere. And I'm happy to tell you that just in a couple of weeks, uh, Julie and I are going to be very fortunate to join forces with a large group of physician assistants that, uh, students all over the country to replicate this study. And it will not be Julie and I talking about our experience because we're not physician assistants, but it's going to be these remarkable physician assistant leaders who will stand in front of their students, in front of their tribe to say, listen about my failures, my limitations, and how I'm still good. In fact, I'm all the gooder for it. Yeah. And then we hope to replicate it with nursing students. And, and it's way beyond the healing 
professions, although we as healers really need this. I would love for architects to talk to their architectural students, for lawyers, for politicians, for priests, for rabbis, everyone. We should all embrace our imperfection, our vulnerability, and say, this is what makes us human. Um, I'm reminded of the, li- of the line of Leonard Cohen that I'll misquote, but isn't it through the crack that the light comes in? Mm. You know, those imperfections that fill us and let us shine light on others. On that note, you know, studies show that, that physicians who've had personal experiences with depression are more likely to ask their patients if they are feeling depressed. And given that we lose the majority of people to suicide within a month of seeing a physician, it may actually make you a better doctor and more comfortable asking these tough questions if you yourself have been through something similar so you know to medical students who think oh gosh this is gonna make me not a good doctor i i say the opposite it can make you um more humble and more able to connect and and ask the tough stuff and it really is fighting stigma i mean that's that's what this is about why why there's stigma still around mental illness or addiction it's it's well, it's a handicap it's a limitation people feel as though they're not worthy right because they have this deficiency but it's not true because we are, we're seeing that right now right. live in front of us that's right live in front of us another of the real pieces of genius of julie is that in this paper we included an appendix that includes uh-huh. i don't know 25 or 30 physicians who have not only publicly spoken about their different frailties, but done so in books and editorials, in highly visible uh, pieces of um, literature. So we're not alone. And in fact, I'm sure that if we were historians, which we are not, we could probably find over the centuries people who have been doing this. I'm sure that in the Bible, there's some character who says uh, something along the lines of, love me, my Lord, despite my imperfections. I'm sure that I'm misquoting the Bible, but if it isn't in the Bible, it certainly is in the spirit of the Bible. So I don't think that we are that innovative. I think that we're in good company, but the innovation was doing a little study where we could show that what our gut told us was actually true, and our gut was right. So has there been follow-up with the students? Funny that you should mention it. Uh, Julie and I are going to be in Israel in um, under two months. We will replicate uh, this study with some little twists and turns with a new cohort of students. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, we will follow up with some of the students from last year. And number three, the thing that I'm most excited about is that we will follow up both with the new cohort students and the previous cohort students not with what I'm now disparagingly calling boring numerical this metric and that metric, which is fine, but actually with where I think the money really is, and that's with qualitative methods, Mm. which means you will sit with the students and we will have a neutral third party sit with the students to actually hear what they really thought about Dr. Chilton and Dr. Martin revealing their secrets. 
were they just being, you know, prima donna-ish and talking about themselves because they're narcissists? Maybe. Or did they do it because there was something really important that resonated with the students? So I, for one, am very, very keen to hear not just I scored 3.2 versus 3.4 in some instrument, but what their actual words are. Because at the end of the day, we psychiatrists and I think we physicians and we humans are storytelling people. Absolutely. We're very eager to hear those stories. We are. We are about story. We're about narrative. Um, and, and that taps into a, a deep, deep part of who we are as, as human beings. You know, in the I am approach, just, just to remind folks, um, because the four domains interconnect, your home, your social, the biological, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me, because they interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. So uh, let me ask you first, Julie, um, what small change can you recommend to our listening audience uh, that can have an effect on their lives? Oh, gosh. Uh, that's, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. I would say the one, the one thing um, that I think could be helpful is if they just remember whatever you think, you are not the only one, yeah. right? We all keep quiet the things we're most embarrassed about. And I, for me, that's the most helpful thing is just remembering I am not the only one. You know, it's not that I'm, I'm a mess and everybody else is totally together. Mm. We all have our stuff. Yes, you are not alone. You are not alone. Never worry alone. One of those, one of those first rules. Andreas, what about you? What small change? would you recommend for people? Well, uh, I would say take your foibles, your imperfections, your errors, your mistakes, your illnesses, your limitations, anything that you want to put in that ledger that you want to forget about and think of that as uh, one of your secret weapons, as an area of lemons out of which you can turn out this very sweet lemonade. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's hard to figure out how to do it, Uh, But that is part of the appeal. And I think that you just need the grit to stay with it and to know that there is a way to feel better and and to do that by sharing, to knowing that you're not alone. And whatever ails you, whatever imperfection, uh, reach out. It's all about that communication. We're, We're social beings. We're beings about storytelling. Don't just tell the story to yourself. Share the story. I'm not saying publish the story, you know, God bless if you do, but just share the story. And I think that that's a power of what we're doing right now. We're sharing stories. And just to add, it meant so much to me having gone through three academic training institutions, UCSF, Penn, and Yale, and never having an attending, a, a senior physician come forward and say, Julie, me too. You're not the only one. Don't be scared. And now to have this giant in child psychiatry, who's also my colleague and my mentor, to know he has my back, that mm-hmm. I can tell him if I'm feeling down or I messed up. And to know there is somebody of that significance that supports me is huge. For the rest of my life, it will be easier because of Dr. Martin. That's right. Yeah. And, and thank you, Julie, but I want to emphasize that it's a 
two-way arrow here. It's a multi-prong arrow. It just doesn't go from Dr. Martin to Julie. It goes back and forth and horizontally and all. It's a virtuous cycle. It's a virtuous cycle that we are extending as we speak right now. Right. And, and this gets right into the second rule of the I am. Because everyone has an I am, because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain, because you know it feels differently when you're treated with respect or disrespect. It feels differently when you think other people see you as valuable or not valuable. And because you're part of someone's home and social domain, this means you control no one, you influence everyone. Just think about that. You control no one, you influence everyone, and you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. And that's what I'm hearing between the two of you is this influence that you're having, not just on each other, but on others. Andreas, what kind of influence do you want to be? Um, I want to, I, 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 I was gonna say, I would love to see it, but I'm already seeing it. And I love to see those students and those people younger than I, not struggling in the same way with the shame, the embarrassment, the silence that I unnecessarily went through. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, it happens regularly, that it isn't some secret, terrible, uh, uh, difficult conversation to have. You know, it's a serious conversation, but that folks feel comfortable having it with me, but especially with each other, uh, that in, in the hospital and in the medical school administration, there's an openness, a recognition, a support for this that um, if you need to, I don't know, go for therapy, uh, it is supported. That if you made a medical error, you won't be talking to lawyers, but you will be talking to peers who will help you do what's right by the patient and do what's right by you. That if you make a medical mistake, the hospitals understand that saying, we recognize we made a mistake and we're gonna do right by you is much better at all levels than trying to hide and deflect. Absolutely. All levels include, of course, legal, monetary, let alone feelings wise. And Julie, what so about you? I, I'm sorry to cut you off, Andreas, but, but Julie, before we end, what kind of influence do you want to be? I'd just like to do my best to, in some way, change the culture. And I think that's, that's really a everybody at a local level i can't change the culture at chapel hill when i'm at duke it needs to be somebody at chapel hill who the trainees and the medical students admire and respect and who evaluates them who stands up and says it's okay we're we're all human and there are plenty of people who are imperfect just like you here in your own culture and it's safe to get care um so i just hope in in my local culture Maybe others will, will recognize that it's okay. I hope everyone who's listening recognizes that. You're at an I am. No need to be ashamed. No need to feel broken. If you need help, come and ask for help. It is there. It is there for you because you matter. And we want you to remember that. Dr. Martin, Dr. Chilton, thank you so much. This has been powerful, and I know a lot of people are going to be influenced by it. Thank you Thanks, folks, folks so much. Thank you for listening, everybody. Night.